Well, it's amazing how movies are a reflection and often are excellent illustrations of biblical truth. Take, for example, this very familiar clip from the 1999 film, The Matrix. This is it. Let me give you one piece of advice. Be honest. He knows more than you can imagine. At last. Welcome, Neil. As you no doubt have guessed, I am Morpheus. It's an honor to meet you. No. The honor is mine. Please, come, sit. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole, hmm? You could say that. I can see it in your eyes. You have the look of a man who accepts what he sees because he is expecting to wake up. Ironically, this is not far from the truth. Do you believe in fate, Neil? No. Why not? Because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. I know exactly what you mean. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? Matrix. Do you want to know what it is? The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage. Born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. 
After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Offering is the truth, nothing more. Follow me. See what I mean? A lot of parallels there with the Bible. The Matrix says that. Our world is devastated and broken. The Bible says that our world is devastated and broken. The Matrix says millions and millions of people don't know the truth. They're prisoners of a make-believe world that lulls people into thinking that they're happy and secure. The Bible says millions upon millions of people don't know the truth. They're trapped in the matrix of unbelief and idolatry, thinking that happiness and security can be found in this world. Neo needed the red pill of the truth to see the world as it really is. Guess what? We're going to turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Ecclesiastes. And I submit to you this morning that the book of Ecclesiastes is the red pill that human beings need today that pulls the wolf from off our eyes so that we can see the truth. The truth that God has put into his word that happiness can only be found in a relationship with God. So I don't know if you've ever thought of a book of the Bible being like that red pill. But I offer that red pill to you today. And I hope that we together in the next few weeks will have the courage to read it, to look at it, to think about it deeply, and to see it for what it tells us about God, about life, and about ourselves. Turn with me then to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, if you have a Bible. Now, if you don't have a Bible, look for one under the chairs around you and turn to page 658. We're starting a new sermon series today. I'm calling it The Preacher Goes to the Movies. Uh, Every week between now and the end of August, we're going to look at a different place in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'll pull a movie clip out from the vast array of movie clips out there that I think really show that modern Americans, modern human beings are seeing a lot that we can read about in the book of Ecclesiastes. They just don't know it. And it's reflected in so many movies today. Now, before we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, I need to take a few moments and give you some orientation. You know, if you've ever been on a whitewater rafting trip or something like that, you always go through a little short orientation to the river or to the equipment or something like that. Well, this book of the Bible is one that needs a bit of orientation. So I've got five little points that I want to go through with you. Just keep your Bible open and we'll get to Ecclesiastes 1 in just a moment. First thing I need to tell you about, if you don't know about it already, is about the difficulty of this book. (laughs) This is a challenging book for us to tackle together. I kind of wondered, why did I choose to do this to myself this summer? But it is a challenging book for sure. 
you read various books about the book of Ecclesiastes, and it seems that no two people see the book exactly the same. Uh, in fact, I'm going to be saying some things that might be uh, more of my speculation about the book. I'm not going to be dogmatic about some of these points because there are good views from a lot of different angles about some of the points I'm going to be making. Somebody has called this one of the most puzzling books of the Bible. Sometimes you will read things in this book that appear to be in harmony with the rest of the Bible, and then you'll take the very next verse sometimes and wonder, what was this guy smoking? It's very strange at times. So if it's that difficult, why study the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, here's why. Because I'm convinced that possibly no other book of the Bible speaks as clearly as this one does to the worldview of modern Americans. And I think that's why we need to see it, read it, and even share it with others. Second thing, its place in the Bible. Just a quick orientation to the Old Testament. You have books of law, books of history, books of poetry, and the prophetic books. Those are kind of your divisions of the Old Testament. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes falls within this uh, poetical section. Some people call it the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And in this, in this section of the Old Testament, you have five books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. And you notice that each of these five books of wisdom raises and answers a different question. Job talks about why am I suffering? Psalms talks about how should I approach God? Proverbs, how should I live? Uh, Ecclesiastes, I think, answers the question, why am I here? And the Song of Songs deals with the subject of love, particularly in marriage. So that's its place in the Bible, just to make sure you understand where we are. That section of the, of the Old Testament is roughly in the middle of your Bible, easy to find. Third, talk for a few moments about its author. Now, this is a bit of a controversial piece to bring up, but I need to uh, acquaint you with it uh, because in just a few moments you're going to meet a man called in verses 1 and 12, the teacher. At least if you have, as I do, an NIV Bible, New International Version. In some versions he's called the preacher, and that's the title that I'm preferring to go by. Uh, the Hebrew word behind that word teacher or preacher is the word koheleth. Koheleth. You might have read that term at some point. It, it, it's a title that means the one who addresses or leads the assembly. The one who addresses or leads the assembly. It might refer to a teacher or a preacher. It could even refer to a professor or somebody like that or a philosopher. Now, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek... The Greek word for Koheleth became ekklesiastes. Ekklesiastes. Now that's why the, the English title is Ecclesiastes. And ekklesiastes is a word that refers to church. And so that's why we now think of this person as somebody who might have called an assembly of God's people. He might have uh, addressed them or taught them in some way. Uh, but, but the question that you are wrestling with is, who is he? Who was this preacher? Well, traditionally, people have held that Koheleth was King Solomon. That is the majority view. It has been down through the ages. After all, in verse 1, which we're going to read shortly, he's called the son of David king in Jerusalem. That sounds like it could be Solomon, who was David's son. 
verse 12 of chapter 1 says that this teacher devoted himself to wisdom. And if you know anything about Solomon, you know he was a very, very wise king, as measureless as the sand on the seashore, it says in 1 Kings 4, was Solomon's wisdom. But I'm going to take the minority view, and in fact it's becoming more and more the majority view these days, that there are good reasons to think that King Solomon did not write Ecclesiastes. After all, he's never mentioned by name in the book, which is a bit unusual. There are some things in the book that would be strange coming from the lips of King Solomon. The language of Ecclesiastes, according to scholars, sounds like language that came up at least 400 years later than the days of King Solomon. And there are other problems as well that I don't have time to go into. But I believe that the preacher is not Solomon, but rather someone who was known in Israel as a wise man or a sage who is writing as if he were Solomon. Now that may sound like a strange way to write a book. It sounds like downright deception to our modern ears, but in fact it was actually a fairly common technique back in the days of the, uh, this time period in the Old Testament. It was a foil or a literary device for this person, this preacher, to make people think that he was Solomon. And, and here's why. It was a brilliant literary technique. Because everybody knew who was reading this book that if there was a wise man in the history of Israel, it was Solomon. If there was anybody who was rich, it was Solomon. If there was anyone who was powerful, it would have been Solomon. And if there was anyone who could have found happiness and purpose in that wisdom and that power and that wealth, it would have been Solomon. And yet, as you will soon find out, It didn't work. It didn't work for him. So the preacher uses Solomon's identity to make his argument more potent. If even Solomon could not find satisfaction and happiness and meaning in life, nobody can. So that's how I'm taking it. Although, again, I'm not going to be dogmatic about that. It could have been Solomon. There are good reasons and many people believe that it was Solomon. But we're going to call him, at least for our study, the preacher. The fourth thing I want to talk about is its structure. This is a pretty important point, but I don't have time to go into it a lot today. I'm going to come back to it in future weeks. The structure of Ecclesiastes. It seems to me that there are three sections to the book of Ecclesiastes, and they are the work of two different people. And one of them puts them all together. Three sections, two different people. Parts one and three are the work of of an unnamed narrator. And part two, which is the middle part and the biggest part of them all, is the work of this preacher, Koheleth. And the narrator that wrote parts one and three put them all together for us. Part one, let's talk about that. Part one is the prologue. And it's the first 11 verses of chapter one. We're going to look at that shortly. This is where the narrator introduces the theme of the book, and summarizes the message of the preacher. Then in section 2, part 2, that's the main part of the book, and it's by far the longest part. It goes from verse 12 of chapter 1 all the way to verse 7 of chapter 12, and that is the autobiographical reflections of the preacher that I was talking about. And then you arrive at part 3, the epilogue. That's the last few verses of chapter 12, 
where the narrator comes back again and critiques the message of the preacher and gives some concluding instruction about how we are supposed to live. So I hope that makes a little bit of sense to you. I think it will become more clear. And in fact, it's easy to see the three sections because the first section, the narrator is speaking in the third person. And then the second section switches to first person. That's where the the preacher begins to speak. And then back in the end of the book at the third section, we go back again to the third person, uh, the narrator, speaking about the preacher. All right. So the narrator's words, according to my suggestion to you, sort of frame the words of the preacher and put them into perspective. Now, that's very important to see, lest you be misguided a little bit as you read through the book. I'm going to argue that the narrator in the last section of the book actually corrects the faulty theology of the preacher. So hold on to that thought and we'll come back to it eventually. The the fifth and last thing I want to mention is an easy one. It's theme. The theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is the meaninglessness of life apart from God. The meaninglessness of life apart from God. Well, without any further ado, let's begin. I'm not not going to read the entire first chapter right now. It'll take too long. Let's begin by reading verses 1 and 2, and then let's dive in. Let's take the red pill. Are you ready? All right. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes. Hear the word of God. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Last Sunday, a 20-year-old Russian model jumped to her death from her ninth-story apartment in Manhattan. Her name was Ruslana Korshinova. Her photos had appeared numerous times on the covers of Elle and Vogue magazines around the world. Her beautiful long hair had earned her the Nickname of the Russian Rapunzel. Last Monday morning, an article in the New York Post said this. The news shocked those who knew her best. There were no signs, a friend told the newspaper. Korshinova had just returned from a modeling job in Paris and seemed, quote, on top of the world. That's what's driving me crazy, the friend said. I don't see one reason why she would do that. About a year ago, you might know the popular actor Owen Wilson attempted suicide. The distraught 38-year-old star of over 30 movies was found bloodied and dazed after overdosing on pills and slitting his wrists in his Santa Monica home. It's hard, said a friend. He's such a wonderful person. He's such a great guy and so smart and just nice. Time magazine wrote that, and I quote, Wilson's life consisted of tossing a football at the beach, riding his scooter alongside his dog Garcia, and dating whatever impossibly beautiful woman he wanted. Obviously something darker was going on amidst all those flaxen-haired, mellow, good times. Something darker indeed. What is it that makes seemingly successful, intelligent, popular people 
try to end it all. And, and let's not talk about just suicide. Why, why do people with a good job and a nice house and a family and lots of promise addict themselves to gambling or food or sex or work? Why? What accounts for so much of the hopelessness and despair that people feel today? Even right here in Orlando, the home of Mickey and Minnie and Shamu and the mall at Millennia and Panera Bread. (laughs) It's the meaninglessness of life when lived apart from God. That's what. Verse 2 puts it down so graphically, doesn't it? Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Ah, you see, that's the red pill that we need to take. That's the dose of reality. That's the real world as so many people experience it because they experience it apart from God. Actually, the way the Hebrew puts it in that verse is better, more graphic than my translation. It's meaninglessness of meaninglessnesses. That's literally the Hebrew there. Futility of futilities. Vanity of vanities was the old King James translation. Emptiness of emptinesses. Absurdity of absurdities. Everything, he says, is meaningless. The word meaningless appears here in this book of Ecclesiastes some 38 different times. It means empty or temporary or worthless or, here's a great synonym, pointless. Pointless. When the Greek translation of the Old Testament was written, they chose a Greek word, frustration. Mateotes. Frustration. In Romans 8, verse 20, you might have heard this verse before. It says, for the creation was subjected to frustration. Same word. Aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) Feeling good? Now, why does the preacher believe that everything is meaningless? Why does he throw that out as his theme in this book? Well, I want to show you that he elaborates upon it in the rest of the chapter in five different ways. So let's move through chapter 1 now. Why does the preacher believe everything's meaningless? Because number one, he believes that work is a waste of time and energy. He believes that work is a waste of time and energy. Look at verse 3. It says, What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Now I know some of us feel that way, but I hope that that's not all you feel about your work. But that's truly the way the preacher looks at work. What does, he, what does it matter? You know, hard work doesn't seem to pay, he is saying. He's kind of like Peter in the movie Office Space. Peter is played by Ron Livingston, and he's having a conversation with Joanna, who is played by Jennifer Aniston, about his job at Inatech. And so here's the conversation between the two of them. Joanna says, so where do you work, Peter? Peter says, Inatech. She says, in, yeah, what do you do there? He says, I sit in a cubicle and I update bank software for the 2000 switch. Uh, so I go through these thousands of lines of code and uh, it doesn't really matter. I, I don't like my job and I don't think I'm going to do it anymore. You're just not going to go? Yeah. Won't you get fired? 
I don't know, but I really don't like it, and uh, I'm not going to go. So you're not you're going to quit? No, not really. I'm just going to stop going. <laughs> when did you decide all that? About an hour ago. <laughs> See, he says work is a waste. It doesn't matter. Second reason why the preacher believes this is he says daily life is a drag, a drudgery. Look at verses 4 through 7. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, and yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. Do you get the feeling that the preacher is saying that Everything is just drudgery. Life is just monotony, just like nature. He, he looks around him at the natural world and he says, see, life is just like, for example, the earth. Why, in verse 4, he says, our existence upon this earth appears to have no lasting effect at all. You know, instead, he's saying, nature kind of mocks man. In spite of our advancements, Hurricanes still destroy coastlines. Earthquakes still kill thousands of people in China. So that's his point about verse 4. Verse 5, he then refers to the sun and, and he says it's just going, it's rising and it's setting, it's rising and it's setting. Another image of monotony. Uh, verse 6, he then refers to the wind. Again, an image of endless cycles getting nowhere. And in verse 7, he then moves on to streams and rivers. You know, repeated activity that doesn't really change anything. That's his point. Uh, somebody has said that life is a weary go-round. A weary go-round. And that's the way the preacher is painting life. On Friday, I was over at LA Fitness and I was on the treadmill. And I thought, wow, this is a perfect illustration for Sunday morning. Running on a treadmill, getting no place. That's what life is, according to the preacher. Not only is work a waste and daily life a drag, but the third thing he says about meaninglessness is that progress is pointless. Progress is pointless, he says in verses 8 through 10. Look at verse 8. He says, all things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. Progress, you see, is pointless, according to the preacher. Now, this doesn't seem to be true nowadays. There are lots of things that are new, right? I mean, look at the iPhone and computers and the advancements in space, among other things. But the preacher would say, well, have they really gotten us anywhere in the grander scheme of things? I mean, people are still dying of cancer. Criminals still fill our prisons. The stock market still teeters on the edge of collapse, rising and falling. Nations still go to war with each other. So in that sense, in that regard, the preacher would say, there's really nothing new, nothing new that matters. And you know, the older I get, the more I agree with the preacher. Every time I hear somebody stand up and say, I've found the secret of whatever, I'm totally skeptical 
You know, I've seen it all pretty much, and many of you have seen a lot more than I have. I've seen movements come and go and trends come and go, and the world stays pretty much the same as the way it was before. Verse 11 says basically, even if you do contribute something noteworthy, it'll soon be forgotten. Look at verse 11. It says, there's no remembrance of men of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Here's a test. Let's see. How many of you know the names of your great-great-grandparents? Wow. Is that it? See? Case closed. (laughs) We don't know their names, much less the accomplishments that they made, the impressions that they made upon their world in their day. Progress is pointless. So why try? The fourth point in our preacher's case here is that wisdom is worthless. Wisdom is worthless. Look at verses 12 through 18. I'm going to read that whole section so that you can get the drift. Verse 12, I, the teacher, see now we're in that second section. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What's twisted cannot be straightened. What's lacking cannot be counted. So I thought to myself, look, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But but I learned that this too, is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Wisdom is worthless. And here's a man who is using the identity of Solomon to say, the wisest man on the earth still comes to the end of his search and says, it really didn't matter. See, the message here is that even the wisest of human beings is powerless to change things, according to the preacher. The other day I saw a speech on television given by a talk show host named Glenn Beck. Maybe you saw this speech as well. He said in that speech that there is not a problem that America cannot solve. You know, the preacher would disagree with that. And so would the rest of the Bible. There are plenty of problems we cannot solve. Because the world is fallen. And it's under a curse. It's just like Morpheus told Neo. There's something wrong with the world. Nothing wrong with our efforts. It's the world that's broken. It's devastated. We may eradicate cancer. But then another disease will pop up to take its place. Jesus said there will always be poor people. There will always be war and conflict. We might defeat Al-Qaeda, but then some other evil will spring up as well. That's part of the frustrating nature of life. Are you feeling it? Are you feeling the, the preacher's angst here? He's just being honest. He's looking around and saying, you know, I don't see much hope. Well, to add worse insult to injury... The fifth and final point in the preacher's exposition of why he believes everything's meaningless is that the creator is cruel. 
He believes that the Creator is cruel. Look at verse 13 again. I read it a moment ago. The second half of verse 13 says, What a heavy burden God has laid on men. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. Now, that's probably not the best translation of that verse, frankly. An even better way of saying it would be, What an evil task God has laid on men. Or what an evil task God has given to men to keep them occupied. Do you see the difference there? The preacher is is really criticizing God. He's saying how hard God is upon the human race. How unfair He is to expect something of us that we're not able to deliver. God's heartless, he's saying. God is cruel. God is aloof. He has intentionally dealt us a bad deck of cards, says the preacher. So there you have the preacher's argument. And he's going to flesh all these things out a little bit more in the chapters ahead. The bottom line, what's the bottom line? Verse 14. Verse 14 where he says, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Well, what do you think of that assessment of life? Is it true? Is work really a waste? Does daily life really have to be experienced as a drudgery? Is progress just a pointless pipe dream? Is wisdom worthless? Is God really cruel? Well, no. No. But in another sense, I can see why a lot of people feel this way. It all depends on your perspective. Notice that little phrase, under the sun, with me. It's found in this chapter three times, verse uh, 3, verse 9, verse 14, under the sun. And it's in the whole book of Ecclesiastes about 29 different times. It refers to the earthly realm or life without reference to God. Life under the sun means I'm going to just live my life as I see it, without reference to a transcendent being. I'm just going to live upon my natural wisdom, upon what I can figure out. So you see, the preacher's worldview is confined to what he can see. It's not the worldview of faith in a good and loving God. Rather, it's the worldview of purely natural wisdom, life without God lived purely on the horizontal plane, without reference to the vertical. It's life lived as if God does not exist. And friend, if that's the way a person chooses to live, then life really is absurd. And the preacher's points are all applicable. The philosopher John Paul Sartre wrote in 1938 some amazing words. Listen to this. It was true. I had always realized it. I hadn't any right to exist at all. I had appeared by chance. I existed like a stone, a plant, a microbe. I could feel nothing to myself but an inconsequential buzzing. I was thinking that here we are eating and drinking to preserve our precious existence and that there's nothing, nothing, absolutely no reason for existing. See, if you think that this world is all there is and all you are is protoplasm, if you're just the product of time plus chance, then you're trapped in this matrix of a make-believe world. You're looking for meaning that isn't there. 
And work really is a waste of time if that's the case. Daily life really is just the monotony of punching the clock and paying bills and changing diapers and mowing grass and surviving another day. But, but if God is who he really says he is, if Jesus really came into our broken world and lived with us under the sun and died and rose again, and if you are the object of God's affection, like the Bible says you are, then you can live with purpose amid the frustrations of life. You don't have to buy into the preacher's philosophy. And isn't that what you and I are looking for? Purpose. A sense of real meaning and significance. A sense that who I am matters and what I do matters. That God really does know me and care about me. Absolutely. You know, when Ecclesiastes was was written, the Jews were looking for another Solomon. They really were. They were looking for someone strong and mighty and wealthy and wise. Somebody who would deliver them from the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans, depending on when it was written. They were longing for a king who would reign in righteousness and and rule in peace and answer all their questions and help life make sense. They were looking for somebody who would make things seem purposeful and make life really significant. And the message of Ecclesiastes is... Solomon couldn't do that. Solomon couldn't do that. Even in all his wisdom, in all his glory, with all his money, Solomon was a dismal failure. All the king's horses and all the king's men can't put broken people back together again. You need a better Solomon. You need a greater son of David than Solomon. You need Jesus Christ. You know, I find it so interesting that Jesus, when he was here, said of himself, one greater than Solomon is here. Do you know him? Do you know this Christ, this Jesus, this greater than Solomon? Or are you still trying to live life just, you know, under the sun without depending on God, without acknowledging him as God, without coming to Him in your sin and saying, God, I want you to be my friend, my Savior, my Redeemer. I assure you this morning, God is there. He is really there. He's not cruel. He's loving. He loved you so much, as we're going to see at the Lord's table in just a few moments, that He gave His Son to redeem you out of meaninglessness. Come to Him today. And find the one that your heart is truly longing for. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that a relationship with you makes all the difference in the world. And thank you that you didn't leave it up to us to figure you out and to climb up to you. But rather you came down to us. You came down under the sun, Lord. You came to our fallen, broken, cursed world to bring purpose and meaning and life into it. So, Father, we crave to know you better. We long to have you fully in our hearts. And may we, in this time of communion, approach you and find in you all of the love, all of the meaning, all of the compassion, all of the grace that we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.